All right, everybody, let's get started. Thanks so much for coming today. Hopefully you had a, um, a good day yesterday. We're able to um, take a moment to, uh, to reflect on the reason for the lack of school. It was, well, I had a meaningful day. We went to a, I took the kids to an event at Grandview Park and it was, really it was something else. Um, I didn't get to the thing I wanted to do, which was to finalize writing out the directions for their written assignment. Um, I realized this morning that I totally forgot to do that. Um, I'm gonna just do it right after class today. So that should be up um, this afternoon. Any questions or anything arising out of last Wednesday, or Wednesday's class? All right, let's get right into it then. Um, today, we are gonna speak about three cases. Um, the first being Baker, and Baker being one of the two most important cases for administrative law, Baker and Babylon. And as I spoke about last class, Baker has stood the test of time in a rather remarkable way. And in fact, I'm not sure this is still the case, but I, uh, I was reading up a little bit about Baker yesterday, and um, it was at least for a time the third most cited decision by the Supreme Court of Canada in its history. So it's um, consistently cited to this day. Uh, it's, I'm sure if you were to go on the BC Supreme Court website, go to the recent judgments, you'll probably find three references to Baker in the last week. At the time that the decision came out, some people saw this was going to be a big deal. Um, professors uh, David Dysonhouse, who's cited quite at length in Baker, so no, no doubt he liked it, and Evan Fox Decent. Writing on Baker's release, they said, the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Baker is the most important decision in Canadian administrative law in 20 years. Madame Justice Claire Leclerc Dubé's judgment for the court puts Baker into the pantheon of great administrative law judgments. One occupied until now by two decisions of the court reported in 1979, Coopy, then Nicholson, and by Rand's 1959 judgment of Ron Corelli and Duplessis. So they're saying, look, this is up there, top four all-time decisions. It's absolutely overtaken the Coopy and the Nicholson cases. We'll talk about those as almost a footnote on our path towards Vavilov. And it, it really is number two, number one, most important cases. Um, so it's worth spending a bit of time on it. It's worth thinking a bit about the facts. Um, you want to have that story connected to this case in your mind to help it stick. But what it's really important for is these five factors, the quote-unquote Baker factors, which will show where on this spectrum of procedural rights you're going to fall. So we'll get into that in a second, but first I'll set the stage by just um, reminding you of the facts. So this was out of the immigration context, and indeed there's a lot, a lot of um, administrative law that comes out of the administrative, or sorry, the immigration context. The federal court judges, my understanding is that they basically have an equal split of immigration cases and not immigration cases. 
and they, um, you know, they they get these stacks of 50, 60 immigration judicial reviews, and they they go through them because they have to get leave to even be able to bring them. Um, it's it's a whole process, and it's a, a hugely important area for the development of administrative law because there's such a robust jurisprudence around it. So. Maybe not surprising that it would come out of the immigration context. What you had was a question around humanitarian and compassionate grounds as an exception to the rule that you need to be outside of Canada to apply for permanent resident status. So what you had was a person who came to Canada, Mavis Baker, on a visitor visa in 1981, and she overstayed her visa. She was working as a domestic worker, but did not have legal status to work in Canada. She had four children um, pre previously uh, who were in Jamaica. She had another four children when she came to Canada. And then after having her fourth child in Canada, Miss Baker suffered from uh, postpartum psychosis and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So she had mental health difficulties. And she applied for welfare because she was you know, not in a position to work at the time. Two of her kids are placed into foster care. Two of her kids who are in Canada are under the care of their father. And you know, while she's going through this, it's revealed or her situation comes you know, to the attention of the authorities and she's ordered to be deported. So she wants permanent residence. She wants to apply for permanent residence. She also doesn't want to leave Canada to be able to make the application from outside of Canada like the rule says you're supposed to because of her kids. So she applies for an exemption from the requirement that you be outside of Canada on the basis of humanitarian or compassionate grounds. So that's the administrative decision that we're talking about. Should this person be entitled to apply for permanent resident status despite being in Canada on these humanitarian and compassionate grounds? And she puts together a, you know, what seems to be a very strong submission. She has help from a lawyer. She has um, a note for a letter from a doctor saying that she's doing much better. She has a letter from a social worker also attesting to the fact that she's doing better and is um, you know, in, a, in a much better position than she was when she was deported. Um, still has you know, psychiatric problems to deal with, but is getting better. And importantly, they say, look, you know, it's one thing that's going to hurt this person and make them you know, probably suffer worse psychiatric problems is to deport them out of the country and make them lose their care, take them away from their kids. So, you know, let them stay. Let Miss Baker stay. 
They also say it's not just Miss Baker's situation to think about. You also have her kids, right? And she's a sole caregiver for two of the, uh, the children, and the other two depend on her for emotional support and her regular contact with her. So she's got this case put forward well for why she should be given an exemption from the requirement to leave the country. She gets back in the mail a letter that says, Dear Miss Baker, there are not sufficient humanitarian and compassionate grounds for you to stay in Canada. Period. Signed. You know, see you later. No further explanation is offered. Signed by an immigration officer, uh, M. Caden is the name. So what do you do in this circumstance? Well, fortunately, she was tied in with, uh, with legal representation. So she brings an application for judicial review. Right? As part of that process, she's able to obtain notes to file from a different immigration officer, this guy, G. Lorenz. And these notes are, are fairly shocking when you read them. Um, G. Lorenz writes, this case is a catastrophe. It's an indictment of our system, in scare quotes, that the client came here as a visitor in August of 81, was not deported until December 92, and in April 94 is all caps, still here. Ms. Baker's a paranoid schizophrenic and on welfare. She has no qualifications other than as a domestic. She has all caps again. Four children in Jamaica, another four born here. She will, of course, be a tremendous strain on our social welfare system for probably the rest of her life. There are no humanitarian and compassionate factors other than her, all caps, four Canadian-born children. Do we let her stay because of that? I am of the opinion that Canada can no longer afford this type of generosity. However, because of the circumstances involved, there is potential for adverse publicity. I would recommend refusal, but she may wish to clear this with someone at region. So a shocking note to file where the immigration officer very much seems to be bringing uh, quite a bit of baggage into this assessment and is, um, I mean, it reads more like a, it should be in the comments section, like on, online, not in a court file. Um, So what do you do? You go forward with the judicial review process. And the lawyers assert, A, on the substance, this decision cannot stand. And I'll note parenthetically, I did have you read the substance, like the entirety of the decision. We're not going to talk about the discussion of the substance today, but I wanted you to have read that, because when we get into substantive review, I'll be calling back to some of the ways that the substance of the dispute was considered in Baker as an illustration of the sort of pre-Dunsmuir, pragmatic and functional approach. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves on that, but I thought while you were in the case, it might as well, you might as well read it now. They challenge the substance, but they also right, challenge the procedure. And they say there's three problems with the procedure in this case. First, they say, 
There was no oral hearing. Miss Baker was never given a chance to speak to Lorenz or Caden or anybody else to explain her humanitarian and compassionate grounds, right? Second thing they say, you didn't give me any reasons. You gave me a letter that says there are insufficient humanitarian and compassionate grounds, signed Mr. Caden, and that's it. I, didn't, I don't have any understanding for how you, you grappled with the doctor's report, with the social worker's report, the submissions by the lawyer, no explanation at all. And the third, you know, not surprisingly, given uh, those notes to file, is bias. That there's a reasonable apprehension of bias here. So, Justice Larue Dubay, writing for the unanimous court, there's a brief dissent or concurring reasons that take issue with the consideration of one factor within the substantive review. But for the purposes of the procedural component of this decision, this is unanimous. So Justice LaRue Dubay, writing for the unanimous court. Um, and do you, you must have talked a bit about Justice LaRue Dubay in law school, a little bit. Um, she was, you know how Justice Cote is like the dissenter now? She likes to dissent on every case just about and Justice LaRue Dubay was her, that role before. Uh, just a brilliant judge out of Quebec. Um, I think the second female judge on the Supreme Court of Canada. And you'll, I mean, there's a reason that you see her name come up a lot, even though she's been off the court for what would probably be 15, 20 years now. Her decisions just stand the test of time. They're excellent. A lot of her dissents have been picked up and became majority decisions. So, you know, it's always a, got a mark of quality when you get a Larue Dubay judgment, and this is no different. Justice Larue Dubay, to cut to the chase, she says, didn't need an oral hearing. You did have to provide reasons, but I can say reasons were provided here. We'll get to that in a second. But you were biased. There was a reasonable apprehension, at least a bias decision cannot stand on procedural grounds. So the, the outcome is interesting and the application is interesting and we'll, we'll talk it through in a second. But what really, really matters is the framework that she advances. So she draws upon that test that we talked about from the Cardinal case. Is there a duty of procedural fairness owed at all here? Well, does it affect the rights or privileges of an individual? And is it not of a legislative nature, the decision? Easily, yes, of course it does, right? So the difficult question, as it almost always is, is not whether a duty of procedural fairness is owed, but what is the content? What is the minimum process that would have to be granted to this individual for the decision to be fair and for the decision maker to have stayed within their jurisdiction? And what Justice LaRue Dubay says, you got five factors to consider. These are five factors that are each independently going to move you sort of up or sort of down the spectrum. 
go through the five factors. I've got them up here on the board. You want to have these really clear in your notes, really well internalized. You know, almost certainly on an exam, you would have a procedural fairness component to a fact pattern, and you'd want to be able to explain the Baker factors and apply them. So the first Baker factor is the nature of the decision and the decision-making process. And what this looks at Is this the type of decision and the type of decision-making process that looks more like court? That looks more like the judicial decision-making process? Or is this something that looks more like a purely administrative decision-making process? And you want to think what looks more like court? Well, the more of an adversarial type system. the more of an adversarial type system that you have, where you've got yeah, two parties fighting it out before an independent decision maker, that type of a thing is gonna strongly suggest more procedural rights. On the other hand, where you have a purely administrative type decision, you know, applying for a liquor permit, applying for a fishing license, you're not gonna have you know, I want to get a, a liquor permit to, to have a, a wedding and, and be able to you know, serve alcohol. It's not going to be um, somebody opposing my liquor permit to you know, advocate vigorously against it. Uh, it's going to be, hey, you know, here's the money. Um, I've got a serving it right. Let's, let's have this, uh, this wedding. So, the first factor, really important one, you want to think nature of the decision and the decision-making process. How much does this look like the type of decision and the type of process you would find in court versus how much does this look like a purely administrative applying for some sort of a permit or a license, you know, asking for just an ordinary exercise of, of government powers or discretion. The second factor, the nature of the statutory scheme. This one more or less breaks down to, is this the end of the road in the statute so that you can only challenge this by judicial review, by that extraordinary remedy of judicial review? Or is there another level in the statute? Is there a reconsideration? Is there an internal appeal right? Because you remember when I talked a bit about the workers' compensation framework, right? Where you have this idea that you're going to have tons of people are going to get hurt on the job and they're going to apply for workers' compensation. And we want to just get it most of the way right the first time around, but we don't want to weigh it down with extraordinary process. And so we're going to have a relatively minimal procedural uh, approach at the first level. But we're going to have an internal appeal, the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, where you get much more process. 
So if you were to try to challenge the WCB decision, the Workers' Compensation Board decision, the lower level decision, on the basis that you didn't get an oral hearing or right to counsel or cross-examination, they may well say, well, this isn't even the final decision. The, the, the statute, the scheme contemplates that you get more process next time around or you get another chance to, um, you know, to, to be heard and to have your, your uh, matter you know, reconsidered. In such a circumstance, that's going to strongly suggest less hearing, less process is required you know, at the first level. So just thinking through these five factors, First one, really, how court-like are we talking about the process and the type of decision that's being made? The second one, is this the end of the road within the administrative process? Or is there a right to further internal review while I'm still within the statute and I haven't left to go into the extraordinary realm of judicial review? The third factor, this one, uh, you might want to underline because this really goes a long way in, in, uh, in practice. The importance of the decision to the individual affected. There's obviously a range of things that uh, administrative decision makers are tasked with, sometimes being extremely important and sometimes being not very important at all. So I want to go fly fishing with my buddies on the weekend and I want a fishing license. Boy, am I down here. Like this is as little important as possible. I'm a professional fisher person and I want a license for a quota to catch a certain amount of salmon, um, you know, in the, and that's going to be my business and I've got 15 employees. Oh, I'm much more over here. So I mean, it's, you need to think um, about the spectrum of different administrative decisions that are available, and you want to think about the spectrum of how important they are. There are some things that are, couldn't be of a higher importance. Your right to stay in the country, you know, it's certainly up there when you think about Baker. Things that affect your ability to be employed are really high up there. But when it's a privilege, that type of a thing, that's going to be lower. Lots of room for advocacy here and lots of um, room for a good counsel to put forward good evidence that's going to help the court see the importance of the decision, which may not always be immediately apparent. So you want to make sure that you've given the court what it needs to understand the importance of the decision. I'm just going to pause for a second while I have this in my mind. Um, we are going to end the course with a bit of a discussion of admin law and practice, um, more you know, practical concerns about how you actually run these types of files. One thing that we'll come back to, but I want to mention now, is the evidence in an administrative proceeding in a judicial review. Almost always just the record that was before the decision maker. Because the court is reviewing 
what the decision maker did. They're not deciding the question anew, right? That's sort of the basic idea. Because of that, I don't really care if there is some really compelling evidence that you just never put before the decision maker. That won't make their decision unreasonable or outside of jurisdiction. How could they have known? So generally speaking, the record on judicial review is what was before the decision maker. However, procedural fairness arguments are an exception to that. They're a place where you have a bit of a chance to expand the record to make the court understand more fully the procedural framework, what was granted, what was not granted, and the circumstances at issue. So these are, this is a place where you may really be able to add some more evidence and including to more clearly articulate the importance of the decision. We'll get back to this, but just I wanted to flag that as um, when I come back to it, I'll refer back to this little discussion. Let's get back into the factors though. So how court-like is their internal appeal? How important is, is it to the person? The next one is legitimate expectations. And this is that one that we had um, touched on a tiny bit last class, but I want to explore more fully. So legitimate expectations is when the tribunal makes you think that you are going to get a particular process. Even if they were not otherwise legally obliged to give you that process, if they lead you to think that you will get that process, it may be unfair to deny you that process. That's the basic idea of legitimate expectations. And where you'll find a basis to argue legitimate expectations would usually be something like guidelines, a published guidance by the tribunal. So you want to have a look on the tribunal website, see what they're saying about the process, have a look through any guidance documents, see what they're saying about the process. The other thing is there may be direct communications from the tribunal to you about a particular process being contemplated or expected. This is uh, more often the case in more complex administrative proceedings, especially, for example, in the, uh, the regulatory context for major projects. As a proponent, you'll go back and forth with the tribunal a ton before getting a final decision from the Oil and Gas Commission on whether you can build a well, or from the National Energy Board on whether you can construct this pipeline. And in the context of that um, back and forth, which may span you know, years even, there could be representations. Yes, of course we're gonna give you this opportunity to respond to this uh, point when we have our hearing. That type of a thing very well may come up and if they are to say that and then not provide that opportunity, um, you know, you, you'll have an opportunity to respond to this fisheries expert who says that you will destroy this fish habitat when we get to the technical review component of this administrative process. You get to it, they say, sorry, you haven't provided any evidence ahead of time and we're not gonna allow you to challenge this. That very well may be a violation of a legitimate expectation. So, Legitimate expectations, you want to think the tribunal 
It's making you reasonably understand a particular process is going to be afforded to you. They may then be bound by fairness to provide that, even if they wouldn't otherwise. So that's legitimate expectations in its um, simplest form uh, and the most common way that legitimate expectations comes up is basically just like that. There's a wrinkle though, okay? So what I talked about there is legitimate expectations in terms of process. This is the procedure that's going to be followed and if don't follow it, maybe that's unfair. There's also what's called substantive legitimate expectations. Procedural legitimate expectations and substantive legitimate expectations. And substantive legitimate expectations is when the tribunal reasonably makes you think a particular substantive outcome is going to happen, that you're going to get this permit, that you're going to get the approval you're seeking. Now, what's, this is what's confusing about substantive legitimate expectations. If I, as a tribunal, make somebody think that they're going to get a permit or an approval before my final decision is issued. Do you think I'm bound to give them that approval? No, I'm not. I still retain the discretion to make the decision either way. So substantive legitimate expectations do not lead to substantive rights. I don't have a right to that permit just because that person made me think I was going to get that permit. So that should be pretty clear, kind of makes sense. Just because you make someone expect something's going to go their way doesn't mean it's necessarily going to go their way. But where it gets a little bit tricky is if I lead you to have a substantive legitimate expectation that a particular result is going to happen, that may increase your procedural rights. There may be more process that the tribunal is required to complete before it can change its mind. Most notably, the courts will sometimes say, hey, you got to tell this person what made you change your mind and give them a chance to respond. Was there some new fact that made you go from you're a yes to you're a no? Did somebody make a new representation? Give them a chance to respond before changing your mind. So when you think legitimate expectations, you want to think there's these two different types of legitimate expectations that can arise, procedural and substantive. In procedural, you're looking at you know, published guidance, the website. You're also thinking about interfacing with the tribunal directly. What did they tell you was going to happen in your case? And you can make a fairness argument that you're entitled to that process. They led you to expect you were going to get. 
substantive, if they've made you think that you're going to get something, you may have a right to notice and a chance to respond if they're going to change their mind. This will come up again um, in a really interesting way when we get to the interface of Aboriginal law, Indigenous law, and uh, uh, administrative law. Because when you have the uh, sort of superimposition of the duty to consult with administrative law duties of fairness, you get interesting problems like. What happens if a nation does not get along with the proponent of a project, which is often the case, and is raising very uh, secret or you know, closely held issues of indigenous traditional knowledge with the government within a consultation process, and that changes the government's mind? Must the proponent be given uh, advance warning of that? Must they be given a chance to respond? Who gets the last word? Should it be the indigenous group exercising their constitutionally protected consultation? Or should it be the proponent you know, demanding procedural fairness from the administrative state? These are really interesting, difficult questions. Um, yeah. So, uh, say for example, uh, in a Absolutely, absolutely. And so we're going to get to that in a second. You're sort of, you're, you're moving up and down this, this spectrum as you go through the different rights. And where you land is really a matter of trying to balance, you know, five factors that can be pulling in different directions. So yes, you're, you're often going to see some factors suggest more process, some factors suggest less. One more point that I should have mentioned a second ago, but I'll say it now, about procedural legitimate expectations, is the tribunal can change your expectations with a clear communication. If they've got a thing on the website saying, we are going to allow, um, you know, an oral hearing in all circumstances. But there's nothing in the statute that demands that. And then when you apply for, you know, to go before the tribunal, they write you a letter saying, to be entirely clear, we have changed our, uh, our process and we are no longer providing oral hearings except for in these three circumstances. You don't have a legitimate expectation of an oral hearing anymore. They've taken that away by a clear and unqualified communication suggesting that that's not going to be the process they're going to follow anymore. Because when we're talking about legitimate expectations, again, we're talking about things they don't legally have to do, but rather have led you to believe they will do. So if they lead you to believe they will do it, but then in a reasonable time with ample notice, take away that expectation, it's not going to get you very far in judicial review. 
the website suppose says like okay so uh, we have recently cha uh, changed the oral hearing stuff and nobody is allowed to uh, attend any oral hearing anything then uh, will it make it justified that okay so i mean just because they mentioned it in their website yeah well it's a great question and there's that's gets to a fundamental point so the question then would be, well, was it just something that you didn't have to provide, but you had chosen to provide? Or is it something that you, in fact, had to provide in the circumstances? And whether or not you tried to take it away by you know, a clear communication doesn't mean that you don't have to do it. So if the court finds fairness demands an oral hearing, or the court finds that, um, that the statute demands an oral hearing, that there legislature intended clearly there would be an oral hearing in all circumstances, then it wouldn't matter that the tribunal tried to communicate there wouldn't be one to you ahead of time. It's only if you're in this realm where it's something you don't have to do, but you've led the party to believe you will do it, that you can, in essence, take it back. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, these factors cannot take away a statutory right. So if the statute says, in fact, you must do this, the, um, these factors cannot override that. Uh, where they come in is where the statute is silent on whether these rights are necessary or where the statute is discretionary. You may provide these. If the statute says you must not provide an oral hearing, that's the end of it. Your challenge would be to the constitutionality of the statute, but it wouldn't be to say, we're not going to follow the statute. We're going to provide you an oral hearing notwithstanding. Those are very good questions. Then uh, we need to do some constitutional staff, constitutional challenges, right? Yeah, and, and those would be very difficult. Um, it's possible we'll get but into that. But yeah, that path is always open. If the statute, you don't like a statute, you know, one path that's always open to avoiding the application of statutes is a constitutional challenge. Yeah. Sorry, I thought I might have missed that. Um, so, what you're saying is where the statute is silent or discretionary, and that's what creates space for the procedural or the expectation? Yes, exactly. Or really, that's what creates space for this whole analysis. If the statute says you have to have an oral hearing, there's no question about that. Similarly, if it says you don't. But where you have this whole idea of we need to determine the content of fairness by looking at these Baker factors, that arises because the statute's either silent or permissive, not mandatory. Yeah. That's a great question. I should have said that at the outset, so I'm glad you you clarified that. All right, and then the fifth factor is the procedural choices given to the body. And so sometimes the statute will show a clear legislative intent to put the question of what process is going to be followed squarely in the hands of the tribunal. It'll say something like, the, the board may 
choose its own procedures and may follow any such procedure as it deems appropriate in the circumstances. If you have that type of language, that tends to suggest less minimal procedural rights will be required. And you have to you know, always be keeping in mind, what are we even talking about here? We're talking about there being some procedure followed that leads the court to say, whoa, the legislature never would have intended to give you the jurisdiction to decide this you know, dispute in that fashion. But if the legislature says, hey, knock yourself out, make your own process, well, that's a factor that would strongly suggest to the court, no, I guess they did think it would be okay if you were to make this decision you know, in a, in a way that perhaps provides less process than we ordinarily would expect. So it's all within that context, within that framework of has the executive stayed within the scope of its statutory grant of power based around that assumption that the legislature wouldn't have intended you to be able to decide unfairly to decide based on an unfair process. So you get a procedural fairness question. How do you tackle it? Well, first you make sure that there's a duty of procedural fairness owed. You say, someone's rights or privileges or interests being affected and it's not by a legislative decision. All right, I've got procedural fairness owed, I'm in the door. Then you've got the potentially day-long headache-inducing process of trying to figure out the entire statutory context, figure out what different statutes may be at play, what regulations may have been passed that could affect your, your rights. And this is an area where there's like, you don't want to take shortcuts. Like you, it stinks. It's not a fun day, but you want to spend that time reading the statutes, reading the regulations, you know, trying to read more or less the whole thing. Obviously you can skim parts that are plainly irrelevant, but there will be little gems buried in there. And Statutes are not always well organized and regulations are rarely well organized. So you really have to delve in, read the thing, look for the process. The more you do it, the more you start to get a bit of an instinct as to where things might be, uh, what sort of things to look for. But you know, if you're writing a memo this summer as a, as a summer student or you know, in the fall as an article student, uh, and this kind of thing comes up, you know, don't feel bad taking the time to review those statutes carefully. That's some of the most important work you can be doing for your client, frankly, is to fully understand the statutory context. And because what you're getting at there is, you know, what's, the, what's the minimum sort of outline that we're working within? What does the statute say must happen, cannot happen, and then what's, what does it say may happen? Um, if you're in the world of must, if the question is you know, oral hearing, and you find, aha, this regulation says there must be an oral hearing. Um, you know, you don't need to go on and put the Baker factors in your memo. You've got it, you've got the answer. 
So that's your, you know, is there procedural fairness duty owed? Check. Carefully review the statutes and regulations? Check. If you're still left with a maybe after carefully reviewing the statutes and regulations, you're into the guidelines, published guidance, and then you're into the Baker factors. And the great thing about the Baker factors is that they're clear, they're, I think they're easy to understand, legitimate expectations being the trickiest of the, of the five, I would say. hard thing about the Baker factors is if we all look at the same dispute and apply the same five factors, we could come to 20 different balancing exercises. There's a lot of apples and oranges. Is the importance of the decision such that it overcomes the um, fact that you know we there is an internal appeal right and it wouldn't seem like you necessarily need that much process at the outset? Is the fact that the legislature has very clearly given this tribunal the mastery of its own process enough to overcome the fact that it looks a lot like a courtroom decision and you'd think there'd be more process? These are the types of disputes that there is not a right answer to. It's a, it's a balancing exercise and you know, it's, it's where, frankly, advocacy comes in. You're gonna get up there and say, this decision is of such importance that that overcomes all the other Baker factors and we need to get an oral hearing because we simply can't have this person lose this right without that process. You, know, you need to get up on your high horse and you need to be a good advocate on the Baker factors to show how to balance them against each other. So let's think about how the Baker factors are applied in Baker. And the court says, look, they point in different directions. Is this a court-like decision? A court-like decision-making? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask, I understand these five factors maybe you up and down the spectrum, mm -hmm. but I was wondering if we could shift with insight as to like, what combination of those helps you decide at what point you actually stop? Like, I understand you can do more or less, but how do you decide between counsel versus oral? Uh, that's a great question, and I don't have a great answer. There's no like mathematical or even quasi sort of algorithmic formula to decide where you are. It really is just a matter of saying, you know, the ultimate question is what would the legislature have demanded or contemplated as a minimal process in this circumstance? And then you're just making arguments, and you're saying it's, it's gotta be farther along because of this, this, and this factor. Um, I, I wish there was a, a better answer for that. Um, I think one of the great underutilized methods of legal scholarship is empirical study of what actually drives court decisions. And I think the Baker factors and how they balance against each other would be an outstanding area for some you know, data-intensive look at I mean, especially with the immigration context, you've got such a, you've got tons of cases applying these factors. Third most cited decision ever, right? 
Um, and so I think that you could probably learn through empirical study what actually drives the courts, but I can't tell you sort of prescriptively how you're gonna balance the factors against each other and figure out where you are on the spectrum. You just need to know the farther along the spectrum you're gonna get, the more you need to show that multiple factors point your way, or one is like overwhelmingly in your favor. So it's, it's a disappointing answer. I wish I had a better one. Um, so in Baker, you start by saying, well, okay, what do we got? We've got this application for an exemption from an ordinary rule that's on the basis of fairly open humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Is that, and you do it by, by submitting a, you know, a package to um, the immigration officials, is that more like a court or not? Because that is not like a court. There's no adversarial process here. This is applying for, you know, kind of a privilege in a sense. It's an exemption from the ordinary rule. You, you want to be treated differently. You make an application. You hope to get it. Otherwise, you just follow the law that everybody else has to follow. So for Ms. Baker, the nature of the decision is starting her off down here, right? The less procedural, less procedural rights. Um, you know, it's where she's starting off. You go to the next one, the nature of the statutory scheme. Well, this is the end of the line. You get this letter saying, sorry, no humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Your only recourse is judicial review. So, you know, she gets to move a little bit farther up the spectrum. The importance of the decision, this is where she's racing up the spectrum, right? What could be more important than your right to stay in the country, you know, with your kids? I'm sure there are many things that are as important, but this is really as important as an administrative decision gets. What about legitimate expectations? Well, there's actually none. There, there's no, nothing that was pointed to as giving a legitimate expectation of any of the procedural rights that she was um, asserting. So, shoot, we've gotten way over here, but now we're maybe taking a step back because there's no legitimate expectations. And then what about the choice of procedure? Well, the statute gives the minister lots of uh, discretion over how to decide these types of humanitarian and compassionate grounds. So, I'm moving over back this way again. So, if you think about Baker, I've got, in essence, two factors the lack of an appeal and the importance of the decision that are pointing to more process. I've got three factors. It's not like a courtroom decision. The legislature seemed to contemplate a wide array of discretion and there's a lack of legitimate expectations, which are pointing to less process. You got two on one hand, three on the other. How do you balance them? I mean, it's not just a rote counting exercise. The importance of the decision it should be given significant weight, I would say. But it, it lands you clearly somewhere in the middle. You're obviously not going to be having a uh, hearing under oath, cross-examining everybody. You know, that's just not going to be happening in these circumstances. So where does the court land? Will they land? Look, you don't get an oral hearing. You're, you're, you haven't shown 
that this is what the legislature contemplated. It's a minimally required process for this to be fair. You've had an opportunity to make your submissions. It didn't have to go to an oral hearing. But they say, we did need reasons. We did need the immigration board to justify in reasons why you didn't get your remedy. And this is one of the, um, Baker would be a really important case even if it didn't have the factors because of its clear finding of a duty to give reasons, which had been something that had not been clearly found by the Supreme Court of Canada before, and had been controversially sort of batted around as to whether or not there can be a duty to give reasons. You'll recall I said last class, you know, bear in mind the difference between a duty to provide reasons at all and analyzing the substance of the reasons. The latter gets to substantive review. That's not a procedural question, the adequacy and whether the reasons make sense. That's all reasonableness, substantive review. But do you have to give reasons at all? That's a procedural right. And Justice LaRue Dubay makes, I think, a pretty compelling argument for the importance of reasons, for the importance of justification, transparency. You know, it all ties into it, ultimately a rule of law concern. And we talked about the importance of reasons, not just in justifying to the affected person why they did or didn't get their remedy or the result that they wanted, which is hugely important in and of itself, but also making for better decision-making processes when you know that your reasons are gonna to have to be clear and articulated and um, you know, based on the appropriate factors. So the court says, yes, indeed, we are going to recognize a duty on administrative decision-makers in some circumstances to issue reasons within process. That's a procedural right, leaving aside the adequacy of those reasons for substantive review. You know, the downside, of course, of reasons, it slows things down, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a somewhat burdensome thing to put on an administrative decision maker to have to write out written reasons, but on the balance, the court says, it's a positive step, it's necessary here. I see the time, but I'm just gonna press through Baker and we'll have a slightly shorter second half of the course of the class today. So, Reasons, is there, were there reasons issued here? You know, Ms. Baker's lawyer is like, no, you gave me a letter that was one sentence long. And I've got these, you know, dubious notes from this uh, Lorenz person, but um, there's no reasons. And the court says, well, in the circumstances, given as there's nothing in the file suggesting that Caden, the person who signed that letter, had different reasons than this Lorenz memo, we are going to infer that those are the reasons. So there's a few things that you can sort of take away from that. One is that the court will infer what the reasons were on the basis of the material in the file if it can reasonably do so. And the second thing is the duty to provide reasons may be satisfied even if you don't get the reasons unless you ask for them. 
right? It wasn't like Miss Baker got these notes until she brought a judicial review application. So, from your perspective as a, as a lawyer, somebody comes in with a bare rejection. One thing you might want to do right away is write to the tribunal and say, please provide me the reasons for this rejection. They say, we don't have reasons. Okay, good, now I've got that for my judicial review. I, I know that I need to be really low on the procedural spectrum you know, in order to not at least have a duty of reasons triggered. So once the court says there was a duty to provide reasons and these are the reasons, you know, Ms. Baker is now 0 for 2. You know, the oral hearing process claim didn't stand up. The reasons process claim didn't stand up in the sense that the court said you were provided reasons. But the third basis, the, the bias, is starting to look really good. If you, from Ms. Baker's perspective, in that these notes are somewhat horrendous on their face. So we're gonna talk a lot about bias a bit after um, the break, a lot next week on Wednesday. But in essence, when you have a adjudicating of rights in an area where you're supposed to be impartial, what matters is a reasonable apprehension of bias, same as in the courts. And the court says, this Lorenz, he was operating on stereotypes. He was linking uh, mental illness, training as a domestic worker, her family size, to saying that she's going to be a drain on the, you know, the social system for her whole life. And this showed a, a bias, a failure to focus on the relevant considerations in favor of other irrelevant considerations. We'll talk more about bias and substance in a second, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but that's the basis upon which Ms. Baker wins. So what's the remedy then? Well, quash, set aside, remit for redetermination. Ordinarily, it goes right back to the same person. Caden Lorenz would decide the case again. However, when you win on bias, it does not go back to the same person. It has to go back to a different decision maker. So a new immigration officer is gonna look at this and decide if, if Ms. Baker is entitled to humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Could that person rule against her again? Absolutely, right? That's it's just a procedural unit. I don't know what happened, actually, with Ms. Baker. I don't know if it's reported or not, what happened. Are there any questions on Baker? Yeah. I have a question on these factors. So, you mentioned all these factors, I assume that you're 
do they give the same weight to all of them, or is there any difference yeah, it's different weight in different circumstances, and different factors could be seen as more important in one case and less important in another case. So it's, it's all very context dependent and very hard to predict how it's going to turn out. So it, that's, a, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it, it's called an indelible. Oh, I think just in this, in the, on the application to Miss Baker, it was an irrelevant factor because there wasn't uh, a legitimate expectation that was raised one way or the other. And so, yeah, I think you know, I sort of indicated it's it's two, four, three against, but you might say it's two, four, two against, and one irrelevant neutral. Okay. Like it doesn't really push you either way. It's a lack. Is that? Where there's, that's a good, yes, exactly right. If there's no legitimate expectation given to you, um, then it doesn't really move you either way. Um, you could have, you know, a legitimate expectation of less process. You know, the, the other side, if there's two sides, I'm just sure you might say, hey, we told her 15 times this isn't going to happen. Um, and that might, you know, pull you a little bit down. But generally, I would think legitimate expectations would be something that would tend to boost your process or be irrelevant. Yeah. Wait, this is this question that back. Are there ever times where the whether it's the same or different decision maker, they're stuck around? Um, you still think it's procedurally unfair and you bring it back up? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It's crazy. Like there are there are cases where you get three, four judicial reviews. And eventually, we'll get to this down at the end of the course, but the court can get pissed off and say, forget it, I'm ordering you to give this. You, you clearly can't handle this. Like, you have to give this person a relief. But yeah, you you don't, you, you st still have to be within jurisdiction. And so if you're outside of jurisdiction the second time around, the court still will police that. And they, they get you know, annoyed. If, the, if they're not being followed. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's a heavy lift, though. If someone comes and says, I won the first time, and I want to challenge it again, you know, you, you're going to face probably a skeptical court, but if you can win them over, you're going to get a mad court on your side. Yes? Um, in terms of reasons, are there situations in which reasons are just not required? Or yeah, absolutely. A lot of cases, really pure administrative decisions, like. I want a fishing permit to go fly fishing. They don't got to tell me why they're not giving me one. Yeah. 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 So that's feel like put on the board. Is that purely linear? Because in this Baker case, I didn't see that uh, a possibility where they do give her a oral hearing yet still not provide reasons. Yeah, that's a really great question. And so I sort of have these tending to go from like. These are the, the more limited procedural rights to the higher procedural rights. But there isn't a strict hierarchy set out in law. So you might be able to argue, look, in the broad context of this statutory scheme, with these expectations, there might not be a right to reasons. There may even be a statute that explicitly says, you know, 
in order to facilitate swift administration, there is no duty to provide reasons. Um, then this one would be off. But that wouldn't mean that I couldn't still argue that the statute demands an oral hearing, you know, implicitly or explicitly. So it's, they, they tend to sort of move in this direction um, in, in terms of a hierarchy of, of rights, of procedural rights. But there isn't an absolutely strict ladder that you're going up and you may be able to argue. You want to think about what right you demand and you want to think about what factors would suggest that that right is necessary in the circumstances. Um, and if you, if there's a, a traditionally lesser right that you don't need, um, you, know, you can sort of skip over it or say, in the circumstances, it doesn't matter, I'm not entitled to this because I really need this to have a fair hearing. Um, and frankly, an oral hearing, uh, it can, the importance of it can vary significantly in the circumstances depending on whether credibility is at stake. If you want to say that somebody is, I, I don't believe what's in your application materials, I think you're lying, that's the sort of thing that's going to, um, in many circumstances, push towards an oral hearing. If you want to say someone's lying, at least hear them out, at least give them a chance to explain their story, and if you have concerns that there's some inconsistency, give them a chance to explain it. Whereas if you're just, I accept everything on your application, I just don't like you, you, you don't get it, you don't, you, you don't qualify for this right, um, well then what's an oral hearing really going to do? It's going to be a chance to be more persuasive, to do some advocacy, but there may not be quite the same fairness concern animating the right of oral hearing. So yeah, there's, it's a really good question, but it's not, I think your word was linear, and, and I, it, yeah, that, I don't know how to better diagram it. I mean, I think this probably helps conceptualize it in your mind, but your question is a really important one because, yeah, it, it doesn't strictly just move up the ladder. These are great questions. Any, any further questions? Or let's take the break, and if you think of any questions, we will look and get them when we come back. Um, so it's a little, let's try to come back in like six, seven minutes. All right, everyone, let's get back to it. Um, I had, a, I had a couple a couple of important questions. Guys, what's, all right, let's get back to it. I had a couple of important questions at the break that I want to talk about. One is um, talking about legitimate expectations and what's the role of the tribunal's own precedence when you're looking at legitimate expectations. If I could show you that at the residential tenancy branch, in similar cases, they've consistently granted an oral hearing. Does that give rise to a legitimate expectation? And the answer is generally no. And the reason is tribunals are not bound by their own decisions. Tribunal members are free to go in different directions so long as their choices respect the jurisdiction given by the statute. So what you would need to show is not simply the tribunal um, has done this in the past, 
but that they have done this and that they've suggested they're going to do it going forward. They've somehow led you to believe this is not just what has happened, but this is what will happen. So look, if you're making a legitimate expectations argument, gather all of the precedents you can that say that this is how they do things and try to frame it as this led to a legitimate expectation, this would be done going forward. But don't be too confident that you're necessarily going to get treated the same way if you can't show you know, a clear representation that this is how things are going to be done, not just how they have been done. And so this leaps into a really important, and we're sidebarring pretty significantly off of procedural fairness, but this is a key concept that we're going to need to be able to have in mind going forward. Um, okay, what? Um, I'm just, I've been thinking about the legitimate expectations. Yeah. Part, and I know that, like, the tribunal is not one person. It's, like, a body of people. And you communicate yeah. with different people whenever you're trying to, like, yeah. address an issue. So I wonder if, you know, if you hear, if you can develop a legitimate expectation through communication with one person and then you hear something else from another person, like, I can imagine that. 100% how it usually happens. You'll say, hey, I was speaking. So a lot of bigger tribunals, um, appoint effectively like ad hoc members. Um, you'll get this person who's a scientist with strong understanding of hydrogeology. You'll get a lawyer who knows a lot about indigenous relations. And you'll get somebody with a strong just general administrative background. They will come together and be a National Energy Board panel. But you also are backed by this whole institution the, uh, the secretariat, it's often called, which is the sort of administrative staff of the tribunal itself. And so quite often, the one doesn't know what the other is doing. And the one is saying this, and the other just doesn't know or doesn't agree. And so that type of disconnect between different people at the tribunal absolutely can happen. Um, and what you want to argue is that I reasonably thought this person you know, was speaking on behalf of the tribunal. And if if it's somebody who really doesn't have much authority. I spoke to an intern, they said, I think this is what's gonna happen. They're not gonna to get too far. But if it's the spokesperson for the tribunal or the secretariat, you know, communicating through official letterhead or something like that, that looks much better. So that's definitely a dynamic and that's a good understanding of what tribunals really look like. So let me then, I'm in this sidebar now, um, and the sidebar is the role of precedent within the administrative law scheme, within the judicial review scheme. And what I said earlier was that tribunals are not bound by their own decisions as a general rule. They're free to depart from their own decisions so long as they stay within jurisdiction. They're fair and reasonable. What about when the court has heard a case on judicial review? What about post-Baker humanitarian and compassionate grounds? How are those, how does the court's jurisprudence affect future cases? And the answer is the court's jurisprudence will be binding. The question then is simply showing that you fall within the court's jurisprudence, that your case is not distinguishable on its facts, 
which is, of course, always a question. But the court's jurisprudence will be treated as binding. And I'll tell you why the reason it's treated as binding is sort of an interesting um, theoretical interface between the courts and the tribunals. And the reason it's treated as binding is because in a subsequent judicial review, it would be binding on the court. So the tribunal may not be directly bound by the court's decision. But if there is a decision with, the, with indistinguishable facts for all the material reasons, and the tribunal doesn't follow it, you bring the judicial review. And the principle of stare decisis will say that you're going to get the same result, unless one of the limited exceptions for departing from stare decisis is met in your case. So because the court is bound by its own decisions, once it decides something, that binding nature trickles down to the tribunal. Because that decision will be treated on any, as binding on subsequent judicial reviews. Practically, what you get then is um, tribunals appear, they have counsel appear at judicial review proceedings to try to explain to the court their process, to try to explain you know, why a particular result, if found you know, necessary by the court, could have problems for the tribunal going forward. But I, I want to introduce that idea and keep it in mind. We'll bring it up again. Um, there isn't really a natural place to introduce that in the way of outlining the course. So I wanted you to have that now to understand the difference between the tribunal's own decisions binding itself versus it being bound somewhat indirectly by court decisions because those will be binding on any subsequent judicial review. Does that make sense? It's a little bit of a tricky. If it doesn't make sense later, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, all right, so you had a question about Bacon. Uh, I just want to uh, briefly comment on the data space. Like, I'm always fascinated by the facts and the outcome for like, thousands of people. Can you uh, run any years for and the question of the uh, I can't relate to that personally. Yeah. Uh, but on the question of its outcomes, I was wondering if the so-called TR to PR uh, here in Canada, students come to a temporary residence at residency, and then they apply to PR within Canada. Uh, is it is an exceptional to this general rule, but not on humanitarian grounds? Is it because of the results of this? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I think I might have misspoke and not been so clear. The problem is you can apply for permanent residency, my understanding is, if you're here, quote unquote, legally, like if you're if you're here under a valid visa and you want to extend that into a permit, that's okay. Ms. Baker's problem was she didn't have legal status to be in Canada. So if you're here you know, without documentation, then that's when you're expected to leave and reapply. Um, don't quote for me that 100%, but it's my understanding of the immigration system. Okay, so, um, just looking at the time, um, I'm thinking I may 
go in the opposite order to what I had expected. Um, and I may speak about the Bergeron case before the Kretschian case, just because the Kretschian case fits pretty well with the discussion on Wednesday about bias, whereas the Bergeron case is a bit more of a standalone. Um, and then maybe I'll show this video I had planned to, um, which is kind of interesting, it's Gomery speaking about this pending judicial review. Um, and maybe introduce the Kretschian case a bit, but we'll really get into it um, on, on Wednesday, uh, which is also a nice chance to review the Baker factors within the context of a bias discussion. Um, so let's talk about the Bergeron case first. And the Bergeron case is interesting um, for what it says is not clearly decided about the law on procedural fairness. Um, and specifically, it's the degree of deference to give to a tribunal on procedural choices that they've made. So Bergeron is a decision of uh, Justice Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeal. He's undoubtedly the, um, I wouldn't say undoubtedly, but he, he's top three, top four admin law judges in Canada. He really likes this stuff a lot, like to a scary amount. <laughs> I was like doing, a, I did a podcast and I criticized one of his decisions and the guy I did a podcast with was on a conference panel with him like a few weeks later and he was like, Please tell Mr. Pulley Blank that I disagreed strongly with his analysis. <laughs> so he's listening to the podcast. He's probably, he's going to listen to this one. <laughs> Hello. Um, but he's brilliant. And <laughs> no, he really is. He really, really is good at this stuff. And so when you see a Stratus decision, um, pay heed. I think he, there's, Getting on the Supreme Court of Canada is, you gotta be excellent and then extremely lucky to have the right vacancy come up at the right time. Um, he could have been on the Supreme Court of Canada easily. Uh, and so, important case to look at because what he picks up on is, look, we talk about standard of review. We talk about reasonableness, like is there there's a range of reasonable outcomes that you fall within them, and we talk about correctness. Did you get this law right? But what standard of review do we apply to procedural decisions, to procedural matters? And he nails the Supreme Court of Canada for being inconsistent on this. And he says even in their most recent case, they quickly say the standard of review on procedural matters is correctness. And it's important to show deference to the tribunal on its procedural choices. But well, which one is it then, right? Are you showing deference or is it correctness? And Where this all lands is, in essence, that you have to be correct 
in that you provided a fair hearing. But there may be more than one way to provide a fair hearing. And if there is a range of different things that would all be fair in the circumstances, the courts aren't going to say, well, I would slightly prefer this choice, and you made that choice, so set it aside. And so what this, it's not totally clear in the case, um, but how Bergeron has been read is as articulating a standard of review that's not really correctness or reasonableness, but is known as the fairness standard. Was this fair? If it's not fair, I have no basis, I have no right to just defer to the tribunal and say, okay, well, go ahead and be unfair. You know, I, as the court, should intervene. But if it was fair, I shouldn't intervene just because it could have been a little bit better. So you want to think, I think this is where it's going to go. I really think this makes more sense than saying correctness, which just begs the question of, well, where does deference come in then? I think this idea of the standard review as fairness will be accepted by the Supreme Court of Canada. Even if it's not in exactly those words, I think in substance it will be accepted, or it already has been accepted in substance, if not described this way. So when you're thinking about you know, judicial review for procedural fairness, don't get caught up in standard of review questions, deference, etc. Frame it all as fairness. If you're responding, you know, if you're working for the government, you'll respond to judicial reviews. I did that for, for years. It was basically all I did. You just frame it as, look, you got a fair process. You don't try to say, it was reasonable in the circumstances, though it may not have satisfied a correcting standard or something like that. You, you just say, that was fair. If you're advocating on behalf of an applicant for judicial review, you know, this was not fair. So I don't want you to get too caught up in the standard of review question. I like Bergeron as a explanation for how this is an unsettled area, but I want you to take away fundamentally standard of review is fairness, is to ensure that the decision was fair, fairly made in process. Um, the facts of Bergeron, um, you know, another high, high frequency tribunal to come before the courts is the Canadian Human Rights Commission. You have a lawyer at the DOJ who gets chronic fatigue, she goes off work, um, the Human Rights Commission sort of proposes a return to work procedure. Um, she doesn't agree that it's workable. Um, DOJ demands that she kind of comply with this and start coming back to work. Uh, she says no, she gets terminated, you know, human rights complaint. And so 
part of the Human Rights Commission process is investigatory. And she argues, look, you didn't thoroughly investigate my, my circumstances. You didn't do a proper job of chasing down every lead. And what you see here, why I think that this sort of, this case illustrates the point nicely, is the tribunal says, you know, we did a, a reasonable job of investigating. We can't do absolutely every conceivable thing to look into every possible avenue, every possible thing you've raised. We, we investigated reasonably. If you were to say there's a strict correctness, perfection standard, they might be in trouble. But when you're looking at it more holistically, was it fair? It's perhaps not surprising that the court says, yeah, they did a reasonable investigation. They satisfied their statutory requirements. They didn't stray outside their jurisdiction because of the nature of their investigation. The court said this was sufficient and didn't hold the tribunal to a standard of absolute perfection in this procedure. Any questions about that Bergeron case? It's like a, I'm not talking about it a ton. The reading wasn't extensive, extensive on it. Um, but I don't want to totally dismiss it as not that important. I mean, I think it is an important case. And it's a concept that I think is easier to think you have in mind than to really grasp. And I, I still struggle a little bit with what's the real difference between you know, fairness review, correctness review on questions of procedure. Um, this isn't going to be the last word on this subject. I think the Supreme Court of Canada will weigh in, even if it is just to basically say that Stratus is on the right track. So, um, you know, important case. And if you feel like you at least understand the nature of the dispute and sort of what's being argued over here, then you're probably in pretty good shape. All right, so I'm going to introduce, I think, the Crutchian case. And maybe because I have it queued up, I'll, I'll end by showing just a little bit of this video because I, I think it just helps you, um, I don't know, just it lands more to me to see the, the people and to get a chance to see the administrative decision maker who was found to be biased being interviewed about an allegation effectively of bias before he's found to be biased. You're not going to find that very often. So, you know, it's good enough YouTube find that I'm willing to, to do it. And if we have time, then we can also watch the video about putting a lemon next to your bed. <laughs> See what's that sort of um, So, Kretchen is absolutely fascinating in Minlaw case arising out of a fascinating set of facts. You know, we're at the highest level, the applicant for judicial review is an ex-prime minister in Canada. And it's all coming against the backdrop of the sponsorship scandal. Is that familiar to you, sponsorship scandal? Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, it was quite the, the big thing at the time. Um, so what you had was a strong Quebec separatist movement that um, led to a very close referendum on 
seceding from Canada. Coming out of that, you have this liberal government of, um, of Chrétien. It's a really fascinating election. What year was it? Like, oh, whatever year it was. It's a crazy election. The official opposition is the Bloc Québécois, if you can imagine. The conservatives uh, split their vote by splitting into two parties. And um, Kim Campbell goes from having like 100 seats to like five. It was just an incredible, you know, falling apart of the conservative um, side of things. The liberals just rock again, you know, a huge, huge majority. And Chrétien's prime minister, blockade requires the official opposition, weird times in Canadian politics. And so the Quebec separatist movement is kind of one of the biggest problems, you know, if you want to take it that way, that the liberal government's facing. And so what they decide to do is to promote within Quebec the benefits that the federal government is affording to the Belle Provence. So they have a, um, they're gonna add a campaign to, to boost the, the federal um, presence and to boost appreciation for all the great things that you know, Ottawa's doing for you. The trouble is, uh, apparently, they're kind of just shoveling money into their friends' uh, pockets. The, the, the contracts for these advertisement campaigns and then the, the money being spent to, um, to boost the, the federal presence is, is a mess and it's not being done in a transparent way. You're seeing contracts just have huge increases in, um, you know, in, in total amount for no additional work being done. You're seeing contracts for millions of dollars where there's not any work that's apparently been done. And so it comes to light, there's an auditor, there's an audit by the RCMP that says, ooh, <laughs> some weird stuff going on here. So the government decides to try to head off um, the, the problems by launching a inquiry. This is a process that you can use under the Inquiry Act federal Canada legislation, which allows the government to appoint a commissioner to investigate something and to make a report. And these reports are not legally binding, but the process by which, in that there's not like a direct outcome from, there's just facts found about what happened. But the process that leads to these um, reports being issued is very court-like. You have witnesses, you know, you have cross-examination, you've got tons of lawyers, tons of good lawyers. There's a high-profile um, inquiry going on right now. Are you familiar with the, the money laundering inquiry that's happening right now? It's, um, I think it's employed like half my friends have all got jobs there. Like, my, one of my friends, I saw this morning, dropping off the kids, um, she had mentioned to me that like, one day she just was on a Zoom and it was, it was like 15 Brady Bunches, like that number of little heads. And she's like, there's something like 25 lawyers on this Zoom call right now. They're all billing. She tried to estimate 
like the per minute rate that was being billed cumulatively on the Zoom call, and it was, I forget the number, but it was absurd. So these things are process heavy, lawyer heavy, witness heavy. They go on for quite a long while, and inevitably they are um, led by a judge, by a retired judge. So there was the really tragic one, the missing and murdered Aboriginal women inquiry. Um, that was Judge Opal, Wally Opal at that one. The money laundering is Judge Cullen, the ex-associate chief judge uh, Cullen. There's the Cullen Commission on, on salmon. Uh, so there, there's things happen from time to time. The inquiry into the sponsorship scandal and the activities of the then Prime Minister Jean Chrétien is given to a Quebec Superior Court judge named John Gomery, who sadly died after COVID complications earlier this year. So Justice Gomery um, gets into some hot water because he is an open book in a way that is somewhat surprising for a judge. Uh, getting a judge to talk about anything is usually really hard. They get extensive media training. I don't know if he was asleep for it, but he, um, he gives an interview during the inquiry where he really seems to have decided that the government, you know, made these huge mistakes and Kretschian made these mistakes. He writes the foreword for a book about the inquiry, which uh, again, just clearly suggests, I think, that they had formed a particular opinion about you know, the, the merits of the investigation before it was all the way done. So what we have in this case is a reasonable apprehension of bias argument being raised as well as other procedural arguments. We have an excellent run through of the Baker factors, which is helpful, and we'll, we'll go through that next class as a review. But we have fundamentally a question of, of bias. Really two questions. The first is, what standard do you measure bias on in this case? And the second one is, was this person in violation of that standard? Um, just to introduce these ideas that you'll read more about for next class, and then we'll talk when we get to this case in more detail next class. On the question of bias, there's what's called the closed mind standard, which means that you've made up your, your mind already. Or there's the reasonable apprehension of bias standard. Different administrative decision makers will be subject to different standards when it comes to bias. And that's broadly because some administrative decisions have a highly political element to them. And so if you're the minister of environment and you run on a platform of saying, you know, we are gonna loosen up restrictions in the oil fields, we are going to allow uh, more drilling because that's good for the Canadian economy. You know, should that mean that you can't make any decisions about oil and gas matters because you're biased? That, that might be a problematic outcome if you're trying to implement your, um, your political mandate at a high level. And so those types of decisions might require kind of a closed mind standard. 
But are you, in essence, an adjudicator? Are you like the person who's deciding the humanitarian and compassionate grounds? Um, you're just administering the law? Well, then you don't get to say that I get to bring my political views into this. You know, you would have to show that you don't even exhibit a reasonable apprehension of bias. So one question is, where does a public inquiry like this fall? Another question is, you know, did the person violate that reasonable apprehension of bias? And so the commission comes out, makes findings, you know, against John Cretchen in particular. He brings a judicial review challenge. That judicial review is pending when um, Gomery does this interview. And it's quite interesting uh, because at this point, the interviewer starts actually asking about those kind of bias concerns and the things that gave rise to the concerns around bias. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope that that kind of 
piques your interest a little bit more for the discussion that we'll have next week on the bias that was found here. So we're going to read that chapter, which is kind of lengthy. I'm sorry about that. Um, but it, it gets into a lot of independence, both uh, in the review and at the tribunal level. Um, and then we will um, we'll speak more about Chrétien next week and uh, you know, hopefully land the Baker factors within that case as well as get into the bias question. So thank you so much. Have a, have a wonderful weekend.